The views you're about to hear on the Dr. Plus podcast are those of the individual participants and not their employers, any other organization, or the American College of Physicians. So let's get to it. Welcome to Dr. Plus, the podcast where we explore the hobbies, activities, and adventures outside of medicine that make our friends and colleagues truly amazing. I'm Saganish, an academic internal medicine and public health doctor practicing in St. Paul. And I'm David, an internal medicine doctor practicing hospital and clinical medicine in downtown Minneapolis. We recognize our colleagues for their clinical work, research, or incredible academic achievements, but we often don't get to hear about the other sides of their lives, their pluses. Here on this podcast, we get to spend a few minutes getting to know each other in a new way. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Chris Ockrey. He is an internal medicine doctor from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and an active member of the Minnesota ACP chapter. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So Chris, I get to start with the really easy part of this podcast, which is tell us your job. What is your nine to five? So I have a, actually a really diverse practice time, which was kind of fun. Uh, so I'm a general internist here at Mayo Clinic. That involves lots of different things. So I teach residents. Uh, also, I spend a lot of time in our consultative medicine clinic, which is a referral uh, clinic here that we uh, start the complex multi-system evaluations down here. And then I spend a lot of time in our uh, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, POTS, and post-COVID syndrome clinics here. And so I uh, see a wide variety of uh, patients that come down here for those specific concerns. Where are you from, Chris? How'd you land in Rochester, Minnesota? Garden spot of the country, I might add. Well, I've been slowly moving my way southeast in Minnesota. So I grew up uh, in Hawley, uh, which is between Fargo-Moorhead and Detroit Lakes. Uh, then went to med school down in the Twin Cities and then decided I want to get a little bit warmer weather. And so came to Balmy, Rochester. Just <laughs> funny because it snows there all the way to like May, you know? Hey, it's about 15 degrees warmer than uh, back home. So, But just as much snow. I've been to Rochester. I know there's wide open fields and then suddenly you come across this metropolis that is that is Rochester. Takes a little while to get used to, but it's uh, it's nice. Well, we're going to talk about your plus today, which is not your job as a Mayo Clinic internal medicine doctor. Um, so tell us about it, Chris. What is your plus? I've been interested and involved with cryptocurrency for probably about the last 10, 11 years. So I know absolutely nothing about cryptocurrency. And I know you and I have chatted about it once or twice before, and you've educated me a little bit, but I still feel like I'm clueless about this. So Chris, tell us how you got into cryptocurrency. Sure. Undergraduate, I was a, a math and computer science nerd. When I was a resident, I rotated down at Mayo Scottsdale. And there was a radiology resident at the time who uh, was also in training uh, that had also had some similar interests. He told me about this thing called Bitcoin. I read the Bitcoin white paper from Satoshi Nakamoto. It made sense to me and I decided to jump into it as more of a speculation. At the time, I had quite a bit in student loans and figured if this kind of uh, hit gold, then that would go a long ways with helping me out with that. This was your plan to get out of student debt? Unfortunately, it was not a plan. It was more of a, hey, throw a couple dollars here and see what happens. I did that too. It was at a casino in Las Vegas once. <laughs> it didn't work out. So take a step back before you got into cryptocurrency. You talked about your major in math and in computer science. Can you talk a little bit about your financial literacy before then? How much did you know about finances and how much did you know about managing your money? Because I think this is an area that as physicians, we also know so, so little about. 
So to be honest, not much. And this is something that as I have gotten deeper down the uh, quote unquote rabbit hole with uh, cryptocurrency, I've actually decided to learn more about personal finance along the way. Around the same time I discovered Bitcoin, I also uh, discovered the white coat investor. And so had been a avid reader of uh, Jim Dolly's website, as well as his podcast, uh, essentially ever since I had discovered that. And so that came along with discovery of cryptocurrency. That's interesting because I guess my assumption had been you knew a lot about finances and then jumped into Bitcoin, but it sounds like Bitcoin was the pathway drug. I wouldn't say pathway, but it was just I was second year resident, had a lot of student loan debt, and I was uh, trying to figure out, well, okay, there's multiple different ways to get out of this. Most of it was going to be along the traditional route with looking for the right job after uh, residency and doing the, the basics of investing and trying to let your nest egg grow but also have a small uh, little bit of uh, play money on the side that uh, you can kind of let grow through a speculation. That's kind of the, the way I viewed anything and everything that I put into this other non-traditional, this more speculative asset. So you mentioned Bitcoin. That might be, Chris, the only word associated with cryptocurrency that I have heard of before. I've, I've actually heard of Bitcoin. So could you kind of give us the cryptocurrency 101? So... We're going to start off with what is blockchain, because before you kind of know what Bitcoin is, you need to know what a blockchain is. The easiest way to think about this is you have a database that you don't need to trust anybody else who uses this database. The only thing that you need to write to this database is everyone has to agree upon a set of rules for adding a transaction to this database. Once that transaction is added, after a certain amount of time, you cannot erase anything that was entered into that database, but everybody can read it. That's what blockchain is. That sounds like a bank account where everybody can look at it. Exactly. It's extremely transparent. And all a cryptocurrency is, is a token of value that is written into that database. I give this token to you, you give it to me. The amount of that token is verified in that ledger. And then after a certain amount of time, you can't erase the fact that transaction took place. That's all it is. Okay, I, I need to stop you there because something of value says who. You know, I, I don't quite get that because like the dollar bill, theoretically, I think at least historically, I could go in and somebody has to give me something of value for it. It used to be gold, but I don't know what it is now. But we all agree that it's worth a, a dollar. Who agreed that this token's worth anything? Essentially, all the people who use this network and think that the ability to write to this database and have the ability to worry that transaction information cannot be overwritten anytime, there's some, a certain amount of value that has to do that and to be able to do it in a trustless manner where everybody can use it and you don't have to trust anybody involved in the process. There is some value in that. And that's different than the way that we typically think of money as being backed by some, usually government. But this is uh, where it's essentially backed by a agreement that everyone who uses the network has. I mean, it's the same reason that a lot of other social networks have value through things like uh, Meta or Facebook, or whatever you prefer to talk to, or X or any of these social networks, they get their value from the, the network of people who use that uh, service. Same thing with any of these cryptocurrencies. So we all collectively decide that this database is worth whatever that amount is, right? That's where we are so far. How come I can now use Bitcoin to buy a car? 
how do we go from that kind of database to like actual real life? Whoa, I can use Bitcoin to buy a car? You can use Bitcoin to buy all sorts of things. <laughs> I didn't know that. It was good. As of today, uh, one coin, and it should be noted that uh, these can be uh, divided up uh, into 100,000 pieces called Satoshi. One coin is about $26,000. So you, uh, you could buy a car with one full Bitcoin today. So we all decide we're in this database. We've decided that Bitcoin is worth whatever. And so we start trading the ability to write in this database. How does that translate to then being able to buy a car with a Bitcoin? Great question. So with anything that represents value, the value is agreed upon by all, all the people who use it. Uh, you go buy something with a dollar and we all agree that a dollar can buy this amount of this product. And so the, the same happens with Bitcoin itself, except the marketplace is set in a different area. It's uh, based on these different exchanges. And so that's one part of it. How much is one of these coins worth in terms of US dollars, Mexican pesos, or other sort of currency? And then if you want to actually translate that into whatever currency it is that you're, you're using, a lot of times this is done by uh, certain payment processors. And so there are companies out there that will specialize with that uh, translation uh, from taking this digital currency and uh, turning that into some other sort of fiat currency, whether it's peso, euro, or US dollar. So take me to the next level then. I've got 10 coins or whatever they're called. How do I get a dollar in my hand? I mean, how do I like withdraw that? Who do I go to? So that's a great question. So when it comes down to it, it really depends on which token it is you have. If it's Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is supported by a wide variety of different exchanges. And so in order to, uh, to exchange that coin into your currency of choice, you'd go to one of those changes. Coinbase happens to be one of the most popular uh, ones, but there's numerous others, Kraken, for example. And then uh, you have to submit information about yourself to comply with different banking regulations uh, that uh, what we typically call know your customer information. And then uh, you would put it on the exchange and exchange it for either another token or even uh, another currency. You could choose U.S. dollars, euros, and then um, that exchange would be able to link up to your bank account. And then you could transfer those U.S. dollars to your bank account. So cryptocurrency, though, I mean, like you're talking about Bitcoin, that was sort of the beginning one. And now there are so, so, so many. So tell us, even from a personal point, how you decide or how you learn about so many of these. And how does that work then now? Because you have multiple different databases that are competing for business. So there are other uh, tokens that, that exist. One of the more common ones, the second largest actually, is called Ethereum. And this adds on some extra value by allowing people to program on top of these blockchains. The main differentiator for Ethereum is something called smart contracts. And these are bits of code that uh, can self-execute once certain parameters are met. And so these can be legal contracts. They can be uh, other tokens that you can basically do what's called decentralized finance, where you can uh, set up a way to exchange one token for another without it involving any other third party. And this is what underlies a lot of the decentralized exchanges that are also present. And they come up with all sorts of funny names that are usually named after types of food for some reason. So it really like I can come up with a contract with you that says, Chris, I will shave my head next Monday if this amount of money is raised. You could. And that comes to a difficult problem that uh, a lot of people within the space are trying to solve. Whereas how can somebody verify that I've raised that much money? And ideally in a trustless manner where certainly if there was something written in that contract where all I had to do is click yes, 
and then would release those funds. But then because every transaction that's involved is irreversible, you want to be able to do this in a way where you don't have to trust me, I don't have to trust you, but this transaction can still go through. Hmm. And so that's created this concept called an oracle, where it's something that's monitoring to see if a real life event happens. And then if so, we'll then signal that yes has happened and then uh, execute that contract. Chris, can I talk more to you about this trust issue? Because you talked about a decentralized banking system and you talked about a trustless system. So I think of like three areas where people engage with their money. One's in the banking system and it's the full faith and trust of the government backs your money. And then somewhere in the middle is the stock market where you at least trust that the markets are working, but you're at a little bit more risk, but there's still some trust. And then you go all the way to a gambling casino where there is no trust whatsoever. It's just a free-for-all. Where does that fit in with cryptocurrency? Is, is it more like the bank? Is it more like the stock market? Is it more like playing the lottery? I would not say it's casino. There's definitely certain aspects of it that are speculative like a casino. But the whole idea behind a lot of these cryptocurrencies is that as long as you own what are called private keys, which is what gives you actually the ability to spend these different tokens, that's yours. And so you become your own personal bank. Everybody's dream is to be your own personal bank. <laughs> you don't need to have trust in any, any other institution. And that's true. And it also does solve some other issues that we see a lot when it comes to things like credit cards. So, for example, uh, if you pull out your wallet and, and were to look at your credit card, grab those 16 digits, grab the uh, expiration date, as well as that code that's on the back. If anybody has that information, they can spend your money. That's a problem. We know that credit card theft is a huge issue. We, do, we see the same thing when uh, people get your, let's say you're routing the information as well as your bank account number. Uh, and then they could, uh, through an ACH, pull money out of your checking account. We see this happen all the time. And part of the reason that happens is people can, with that information, then uh, start a request for money from one of those accounts. And that's a, the source of a lot of fraud that we all ought to see. Uh, with a lot of these uh, cryptocurrencies, the reverse happens. No money leaves your hands unless you say it does. And so the ability to have that type of fraud just does not exist in this type of system. Can someone get your personal key? They could, but the security around those is a little bit more difficult. There's lots of ways that you can protect that, including uh, adding things on top of the key, uh, that key itself to make it so that you need the key plus other extra information to prevent funds from leaving your possession. What strikes me about this is how it, like this idea of decentralizing banking allows me to live anywhere, to go anywhere. And then you think about places where governments are tenuous, you know, where your money may be tied up in a bank that you can't access to. It would allow me to still access funds and not be dependent on where I'm living, who's governing me. It would allow for a lot of freedom if you're able to access Bitcoins or cryptocurrency in this way. Am I understanding that? Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the uh, potential uh, major upsides. And whether it's uh, people interacting natively in one of these currencies or being able to use one of these decentralized exchanges to take your token of choice and uh, convert it into the local uh, government-sponsored currency, there are, certainly are some opportunities to do that. It's fascinating when you think about like societal structures and you need governments to manage the banks and you need the banks to be able to eat and you need to, you know, these these big institutions. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually, I maybe I don't need you. I just need a place to take this money and make it local. 
And, and not just that, it also offers a lot of opportunities for areas that don't have banking access, not only here uh, or abroad, but we also have a, a, just a huge number of uh, people here in the U.S., that don't have access to traditional banking service, whether ways to hold on to their money or ways to receive things like loans. And there are, there are services that are being built upon these different digital tokens that uh, not only offer banking services, essentially, but also lending services. It's fascinating. So you brought up something that sounded reassuring, Saganish. You said, well, look, I can have control of my money. And Chris, you sort of confirmed that. Whereas I'm sitting here pretty unsettled. I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. I, you know, I, 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 I think maybe I anchor on that speculative part. You could lose everything, could you not? Absolutely. And that's where... One of the challenges with this is, let's say uh, if you have all your money in a bank, you have assurance from the federal government or credit union, depending on where it's at, that up to a certain number of dollars are basically safe if, let's say, that bank goes under. Uh, whereas uh, if you are your own bank, you don't have any of those assurances. And so if you were sloppy uh, with your own personal security or what seems to be happening uh, more frequently nowadays, a target of people who are... Uh, unscrupulous actors who then will trick you into entering your information and then wipe out your accounts. Absolutely. And there is no way for you to get that money back because these are irreversible transactions. That is one of the big dangers of this technology. And it's really one of the many things that is keeping this type of digital asset from really taking it off because of those concerns, because you're absolutely right. You could lose absolutely everything. Because of the security risks, this isn't something I actually recommend that a lot of my colleagues jump into without really knowing what it is that they're potentially getting themselves into. I would hate for uh, anybody to uh, lose their funds in that way. So, Chris, let's talk about how then cryptocurrency might fit into a person's financial plan. You you talked about that at the very outset of this show. You talked a little bit about the white coat planner. How does cryptocurrency, if it does at all, fit into a physician's financial plan? That is a excellent question. For most people, it probably doesn't. And the reason I say that is you have to have a lot of trust in yourself and your own operational security to be able to not uh, misplace any of these private keys, not let them fall into the wrong hands so that someone can take them. And so if you don't trust yourself in those, essentially what we're left up to is the ability for other entities or organizations to do that for you. As of right now, there are limited ways to get that type of exposure. There's a few uh, exchange-traded funds that do offer some exposure to Bitcoin, Ethereum, as well as about 10 other different digital assets. And there is thought that in the next year or so, there might be uh, enhanced offerings through what are called spot ETFs. Uh, but all that is currently uh, under debate by the SEC at the moment. And so that's probably going to be the way that most physicians as well as most retail investors are gonna, going to get access to uh, these type of investments as a part of their retirement planning. If somebody is interested in doing it, do you recommend that they get up to speed on all of this stuff that you've been talking to us about or do it sort of like you do and just jump in the deep end with both feet? So even before I jumped in, I still got to speed by reading the direct source material. And actually, there are some really great resources that are put out by some of these different exchanges nowadays. So earlier on in this discussion, I mentioned both Kraken and Coinbase. So these are two US-based exchanges that actually go a long ways with trying to educate users about here are the different digital assets. Uh, here's what makes them a little bit different. Here's what this blockchain is uh, hoping to optimize towards. This one may optimize more towards security. This one may optimize more towards smart contracts. This one may optimize more towards transaction speed. 
they actually offer uh, tutorials on how to use these, how to use these different assets for different things involved with Web3 and give you most of the information you need to know that should make you feel comfortable with jumping in after that. It sounds like you've done a lot of research on your own, and this has led you to start thinking about uh, physician finances. Can you tell us more about that journey? Where has it led you? Have you started doing talks and seminars, or have you just been talking to residents? Where has that journey of like personal finance led you? That's a great question. Yes, it absolutely has made me really think hard about what the purpose is as physicians. We are working to try to make our patients better. At the same time, we also want to be able to uh, work towards being able to retire at some point ourselves and really what the purpose of the financial aspect is of, of our jobs. We know that physician burnout is a, is a big issue. And going back to student loans, the, the amount of burden that the loans themselves have on, on us can really drag us down. And so that's a long way of saying I really want to look into and learn more about from the financial side of things. What's the best way to not only attack the student loan burden, but also when I uh, finally get that taken care of, how can I set things up so that the financial stress basically doesn't make an impact on the physician burnout side of things? That's everything. I think it's hugely important. You know, our dentistry colleagues are taught about finance and money and money management during their dental schooling and our medical students are not. So we've started some efforts in the med school to just have just basic discussions around money and budget and paying off a little bit of your loans, even if you're in residency and how do you plan for retirement. And I know students are really hungry for it because most of us from our upbringing, we haven't learned about finances. Our parents maybe didn't talk to us in a particular way about how to manage money. And we go from, for a lot of us, we go from not having any money to having a lot of money and not knowing what that means or how to be planful about it. And not understanding that to be able to be in a job that you don't need in a sense that, you know, that you it get, gets you freedom. If you want to cut down on your FTE, if you want to change how you want to practice, if you can financially give yourself some playroom with it, it's been really helpful. It's been huge. And that's exactly how I, uh, how I saw it. It gives that flexibility so that when you have the ability to go and uh, do things outside of medicine, the, the doctor plus part of it, you have the ability to do that. Also, uh, going through residency, I would get on a almost weekly or monthly basis, all these different emails or uh, solicitations from people who basically saw us as easy targets. Sign up to hear more about this annuity or those types of things. And after kind of digging into those, realize that, yeah, in a lot of ways we are because we're busy uh, learning our craft and don't have a lot of time to spend learning this other stuff that is can be very complex and really does affect the way that uh, you're going to live your life going forward. Uh, but we just didn't neglect. And I wish we had the better ability to... to address those things early on in training or uh, residency. Chris, before we let you go, you you said you read the source material. You went down to the people who, like invented this. Um, what would you recommend for someone who wants to learn a little bit more? What's their first step? So first step, honestly, uh, you could either go back to the, if you want to learn a little bit more about the philosophy behind uh, Bitcoin itself and what some of the problems it solved, uh, go to the Satoshi white paper. Uh, but uh, if you just want to know big picture wise, uh, what do you need to know about all the different systems? Go to Kraken, go to Coinbase, sign up for the tutorials. It, do it doesn't uh, cost you anything. It's all free. And then you can learn about what these different blockchains are, what the tokens are, how they're different, and uh, decide if that's something that you have any interest in whatsoever. And what about personal finance then? Do you have resources for that? I really do like the White Code Investor. I think that podcast is amazing. 
Are there other resources that you have? Or did I just take away your main one? Yeah, no, uh, uh, Jim Dolly and, and the, the, the books he's created, the forums, just the website itself, great resource. His podcast is interesting and it always have uh, great people who call in and leave a question for him to answer that gets into some of the more finer details from the physician financial side of things. That's been my go-to resource. Any last words for us, Chris, before we let you go? We've just been such a pleasure to talk about cryptocurrency and finances. And I feel like I've just entered the matrix. Yeah, I feel like I'm in a James Bond movie. A hundred percent. I have to tell you, like, I am so much more engaged and interested and like really curious now. So uh, the digital assets, uh, asset space, it's interesting. If you follow the news, uh, you'll hear about uh, interesting things in there. Bad things happen. And so uh, if you are interested in uh, diving into this a little bit further, I can't stress this enough. Try to read as much as you can before you do that. And mm-hmm. then uh, never put in into it more than you'd be comfortable to lose if one of those bad things happens. Because I would hate uh, for someone to hear this podcast and then say, you know what, I'm, I'm going all in and, and then something bad happened. So that's never the way to do things in general and with uh, digital assets, most definitely. We thank you. It'll be noted, uh, you know, enter at your own risk. But thank you for at least opening up the window and showing us into this world and explaining to us a little bit about cryptocurrency. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dr. Plus. Dr. Plus is sponsored by generous funding from the American College of Physicians and is produced by Julie Sensuo. 